Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. My name is Richard E. Grant and in each episode I'll be joined in the studio by a Penguin author, from world-renowned literary giants to comedians, musicians and fellow actors. I ask each guest to bring a number of objects that inspired and shaped the writing of their latest book. They can really bring with them anything they want, as long as it fits through the studio door. I get to ask all sorts of things which appeals to my curious, or should I say, nosy Parker side. And throughout the episode, I'll be playing some extracts from their audiobook. The Penguin Podcast with Richard E. Grant. Author's Notes. In this episode, I'm joined by acclaimed actor and writer of stage and screen, Mira Sayal. She starred in two hit comedy series, Goodness Gracious Me and The Kumars at Number 42, plus numerous theatre productions, including the Royal Shakespeare Company's Much Ado About Nothing. If that wasn't enough, she's also known for her funny, sharp and provocative fiction, which is what brings her to the Penguin studio today. Mira Hello. Hello, Richard. <laughs> so lovely to be here with you. Thank you for asking me. <laughs> You're here today to talk about your latest novel, The House of Hidden Mothers. Can you just give us a quick synopsis of the story and a flavour of what it's like? Of course. Um, the story centres around a 48-year-old British Indian woman called Sharma. She has recently, uh, after a messy divorce, remarried a much younger white man called Toby. She also has a 19-year-old daughter, Tara, from an earlier marriage. And she's desperate for a child with Toby. At 48, it's not going to happen naturally. So she decides to hire a surrogate from India. I don't know if your listeners know, but I certainly didn't, that India's surrogacy industry is the biggest in the world, worth $4.5 billion a year. Staggering. Staggering. Because it's cheap and it's unregulated. But for Sharma, it's the way forward to her dreams. And so the spine of the book is about Sharma and her surrogate, Mala, the relationship between these two very different women who each hold the key to each other's dreams and how that power balance subtly shifts as unexpected events take place. <laughs> take place. And if that sounds very serious, I can, I can vouch for saying that it is enormously moving and incredibly funny and hilarious at the same time. So a great achievement. Thank you. Now, before we get into the objects that you've brought with you today that inspire the book, I'd like to play a clip from the audiobook which you read yourself. Now, how did it feel to bring your characters alive because you really did perform each character and you gave them different accents? Yes, I felt I had to, really, because obviously there's a lot of Indian women in this book and they all needed distinctly <laughs> different accents. Um, the difference between Mala and Sharma wasn't too difficult. Mala is from a very poor and rural part of India, so she had obviously quite a thick accent. Sharma is British Asian funky, a little bit like me, but slightly younger. Um, but I think that's one of the pleasures, actually, because I had all those voices in my head when I was writing the book. I mean, as an actor, of yeah. course, you have all those voices and yeah. you imagine playing each character as you're writing them and you want to give them great dialogue. So it was actually quite a pleasure to be able to, to give rein to that when I was doing the audiobook. Let's hear an excerpt from The House of Hidden Mothers. Shema is waiting in her doctor's fertility clinic for some life-changing news. There was so much waiting in this game and yet so little time to play with. Her life was punctuated with mocking end-of-sentence dots. All those years spent avoiding getting pregnant, all those hours of sitting on cold plastic toilet seats in student digs, shared houses, first flats, 
praying for the banner of blood to declare that war was over and that your life would go on as before. And then, the later years, spent in nicer houses on a better class of loose seat, reclaimed teak or cheekly self-conscious seats like the plastic one with a barbed wire pattern inside, her daughter's choice, of course, still waiting. But this time, praying for the blood not to come, for a satisfied silence that would tell Sharma her old life was most definitely over, as inside her, a new one had just begun. So that just pings us straight into what is going on here. So, Mira, for your first object, please, what have you brought with you? Well, um, my first object is one of my favourite books and the book that inspired, part inspired me to write the novel. And it's The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood. Well-thumbed? Well-thumbed, very old. I think it's a first edition. I mean, I've had it years. So how many times do you think that you've read it? Oh, gosh, I don't know, eight, nine, ten times. It's one of those wow. books. I've had it for so many years, and I, it's one of those books I dip into. It's a quick read in many ways because it, it's deceptively short and restrained, but so layered. I do remember when I first heard, thought about the surrogacy idea, and actually it was inspired by a clip of a documentary, which I'll, I'll talk about later, which mm-hmm. I, I caught, and I saw this image of lots of heavily pregnant Indian women sitting in a dormitory like brood mares or chickens. And that absolutely reminded you from Handmaid's Tale. I, I absolutely, hairs on the back of my neck, I thought Margaret Atwood saw this coming. She wrote this book, what, 25 years ago? She saw a future where fertility would be owned and outsourced. She saw a future where the rich infertile would own and employ the poor and fertile women of the world. She saw it coming. So it was quite, um, not only is the book really prescient and it's an astonishingly powerful and deeply feminist book, I think. For me, it also chimed so much with a lot of the themes I wanted to talk about because for me, surrogacy was always the perfect metaphor to talk about the complex relationship between the hugely changing India and the West. And for me, surrogacy sort of perfectly captured the complexity of that connection. Is this exploitation? Or is it a solution? Have you sent your book to Margaret Atwood? I think my publishers have. <laughs> I haven't wow. had a reply yet, but I'm sure she's quite busy. <laughs> oh, right. So at the I'd end love of to know what she thinks of it. So would I. At the end of your book, you thank two people who are anonymous, unless you're going to tell us who they are, for sharing their story. Now, how much of the book is based on real people and scenarios? Well, the couple I talked to who were brilliant um, and don't want to be named, understandably. They had two children by Indian surrogates. How did you find them? Oh, through the net and blogs. They blogged about their experiences at one point anonymously, so it took a bit of time to track them down. Luckily, I know a few journalists, and they did a bit of sniffing for me. I thought they'd be very angry when I did contact them, but they were wonderful on the strict instruction they were to remain anonymous because some of their family do not know their children were born to surrogates. Understood. Yeah. So they gave me a lot of emotional landscape, but I haven't based anyone specifically on them at all. The most autobiographical part of the book is the grandparents' story. Um, Sharma's parents in the book um, have a flat in India which has been overtaken by relatives and they've spent many years fighting this terrible court case trying to get the property back. That's based directly on events in my own family. But don't you think everything is autobiographical in that you had a daughter yeah. by your first marriage? Yeah. 
and then your second marriage is to a younger man. I don't know what you're implying, Mr Grant. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean, I know what it... Is. And you've had a child. And I've had, I'd, I had a late child. Yeah, you're right, actually. I mean, I, I know what it's like to be in a blended family. My partner is only two years younger than me and not 12 years, as right. Toby is younger. And I also have a very good relationship with my daughter, I should add, not like the one in the book. <laughs> um, but I certainly know what it's like to know how a step-parent adjusts to a step-child. Mm-hmm. And also I think... That's what I meant when I was saying that, that sure, it, sure. it gives it great authenticity. Yes, that's true. And I think... Had I not, by the grace of God, got pregnant so quickly with my son, I'm sure I would have looked at many options, actually, the way that Sharma has done. Because I know what that desire is when you you meet somebody you love deeply and you want a child with them. I know how that feels. Sharma is 48 and desperate for another child at the start of the book. We find out that her options are limited because of her age. How do you think having a fertility sell-by date affects women psychologically? It's huge, and it's what we're all um, constantly lectured slash obsessed with, actually. I suppose that ticking clock is the one thing that we cannot change. Um, I mean, you can with science, of course. A 67-year-old woman in Germany had quadruplets. Yeah, now how do you feel about that? Well, I don't know what that's about. If it's about being a parent, then a parent's job is to be around as long as possible for their children and to guide them through life with love and wisdom, it's not just producing a litter, is it? <laughs> it well, depends what you think what parenthood is about. You know, Michael Douglas at the age of 70-something, you know, had, had children. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, with a much younger woman who presumably will be around to bring them up when he's not. I mean, that's my instinctive reaction to yeah. it. Somebody at 67 having quadruplets. But that's sort of why I made Sharma 48. That was the cut-off point. Well, originally when I wrote the book, she was 44. And the, the feedback I was getting from friends was, well, that's, that's perfectly that's reasonable. reasonable. Yeah. I wanted Sharma to be at the age where people started to go, and her daughter, in fact, says, you're nearly 50. Why mm. are you doing this? A 61-year-old woman is going to turn up at the school gate when her daughter has right. just become a teenager. Right, right. But on the other hand, you're quite right. People do not question that when it's a man. Yeah. They don't. So there's a terrible double standard here. And we, we go back to this bigger question... Why is it such a big issue for women? For all those reasons, because you're judged on it. The choice is taken away from you. It's not a choice that men have to make. Mm -hmm. However, we have to deal with what Mother Nature has dealt us and we have to make those decisions wisely. I mean, the whole issue of surrogacy is so complex. That's why it's a joy to write about. And I genuinely don't want to be judgmental on either side. I hope by the end of the book you absolutely see everybody's point of view. I think that is what is so prescient about your book in that you have dealt with all these issues but because they go through personal stories you're not bashed over the head with that good and i think that's a great achievement on your on your part because you're somehow subverted sounds the wrong way of saying it as though somehow you've tricked us into it but by making everything so personal the politics are inherent in that. And yeah. I love that about the book. And I congratulate you hugely on that. Thank you. Now, the central character of The Handmaid's Tale is Offred. How does her character compare to Marla's character in your book? I think they similarly share a, a spirit of rebellion and they are aware of the limitations of the choices of their lives. I mean, I think that's the most important parallel between them. Mala is hugely intelligent, as is Offred. Mala knows that the only thing she has to sell of worth is her womb. 
She has nothing else to sell. She owns nothing else. And so confronted with the choice to be a surrogate, it's not a job that anyone would choose if they had other options. But for Mala, it is the only escape she has. For Offred, she's owned. She's a slave. She has no choice. But I don't want to spoil the book for anyone who hasn't read it, but obviously she finds through the book a way to grab the meaning of her life back. So, <laughs> OK, let's find out what your second object is. Um, my second object are... This is just some of the... Can you hear them, Jinx? Yes. The gold bangles I was given when I got married. And uh, you can feel how heavy they are, right? Mm. This is very pure Indian gold. So can you tell me about these gold bangles? And they were given to you at your wedding. Yes. Um, OK, well, in North India, where I'm from, the, unfortunately, the dowry system is alive and well, even though it's illegal and leads to untold misery. The dowry is a bride price, literally, that a girl, when she's marries, is expected to bring with her a large amount of wealth, almost as if you're persuading the boy's family to take the girl off our hands. Exactly. You know? I totally disagree with it, and I've never had one. Having said that... That's what um, still happens and I think is the root of a lot of the inequality in, in, um, in my community. However, one traditional bit of getting married is that the girl is given gold, wedding mm -hmm. gold. And for many women, traditional women, this is the only independent wealth they ever have. It's their gold. No one's allowed to touch it. So the amount of gold you get is very important. OK. So this is taken from Chapter 4, this next clip, where Marla, who's from a poor rural Indian village, is reflecting on the financial pressures that daughters bring to their families. They hung from the doorway like wedding garlands, those six beautiful girls, always smiling, keeping themselves busy, polishing their small prison till it shone. Because wasn't that what it was? Marla knew it, so did they. Ripe for the picking and withering on the stalk, one by one, the eldest gradually appearing less often, smiling less, followed by the next sister and then the next, as they realised that no amount of smiling and cooking could change the system that had remained in place for hundreds, maybe thousands of years. Girls cost money, no matter what they may give you back in kind. So... It's still illegal, but it still happens in India. How common do you think this is today? Oh, it's still common. You know, you can pass as many laws as you want, but until you start to re-educate people and until families have the courage to say we will not take part in this system, then it perpetuates this terrible cycle that because the birth of a girl is considered almost a curse for poor families because they know those girls are going to cost them money to marry them off. So the, these gold bracelets in poor rural areas of India, this is the only independent wealth that many women will ever have yeah. and they often use it to barter with if they need money and this is the world that Mala is from. Yeah. From my research into surrogacy, and this won't surprise anyone listening, the women that do become surrogates are inevitably from very, very poor rural areas. Because why else would you choose to do that job? Yeah. And what sounds like a paltry amount to us, they get paid between five and seven thousand pounds. And how long will that last? Oh, that's life changing for a poor woman. That's life changing. That's enough to build a house and to put all your kids through school. 
Wow. So uh, you can see why women will go and do and, and, be, and become surrogates. And why it is now a four and a half billion pound industry. Yeah. But the fact is they still get paid significantly less than any other surrogate would in, in any other country. And in fact, in most other countries, you can't even pay a surrogate. It's a voluntary act, as it is in this country. I mean, I wanted the reader to understand the world that Mala comes from and how being a woman limits your life choices to such an extent that she lives in an area where female infanticide is really common. So, you know, in the village school, there are 20 boys to five girls. And her mother says at one point, oh, well, don't worry that this is going to happen because girls will become more precious than gold because there's less of you. And Mala can't understand why, when there's less of them, their price has actually still gone down rather than up. Yeah. So in the book, the surrogate mothers must have had at least two healthy children before they can register. Now, you have two children of your own. Could you imagine how it must feel to give birth to a third, but then not to raise it, to never see it again? This is part of the reason I wanted to explore the surrogacy experience, because... What is the psychology? What does it do to you to carry a child inside your body that within hours of giving birth you will never see again? Indian surrogates sign away all rights, so even in the future if the child wanted to trace who actually gave birth to them, they couldn't. However, when you see the documentaries and you see the surrogates, they all say... We accept this because we are just helping someone else to have a child. We are merely just an oven for the child. We're cooking it for a couple. But you have to remember, for them, this act actually gives their children a future. That's how they see it. That I will give away this baby so my children, who are near starvation back in the village, can have a life, can have a future. Could I do it to keep my children from starving? Yes, I could. So what you do rationally, I can understand all of that, but the act of actually giving birth to a child and then having to give it away, I don't think anybody, you, you can't really imagine what that is going to do to you psychologically. No, 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 I, I'm sure Because the can't. baby's given away and you're still producing milk. Yes, yes, and your body's still recovering and, yeah. You mentioned the documentary, so can you show me your next object, please? This is a clapperboard okay. that I'm handing to you in lieu of um, the fact I can't give you a television documentary in your hands. Okay. <laughs> There's your clapperboard. That's, so this represents a BBC documentary you saw called The House of Surrogates. Yes. Now, when did you see this and what was it about the programme that caught your attention? I think I saw this about, it must have been about two, two and a half years ago. And I suddenly saw this image of... A row of obviously poor, very pregnant Indian women, their bellies straining against their saris, sitting in what looked like a dormitory, being lectured at. And I thought, what? what's this? And I kept watching. And a whole world opened up to me. And I just went, oh, right, this is absolutely what I've been waiting to write about. It just ticked every single box I had. It ticked all the areas I was interested in. I immediately went to where you went, Richard, where I thought, what is it like to give a baby away? What is that relationship like between the woman who's desperate for a baby and the woman 5,000 miles away she has no connection with that holds the answer to her dreams? And for both of them, they desperately need each other. For those nine months, they both desperately need something from each other. What is that relationship like? So to reel back with what you were saying a little bit earlier, do you think that 
the emotional impact is affected by if you gave birth as a poor rural Indian woman to a Caucasian child, mm. that that, to some extent, would make it less traumatic that that child is so clearly not of your own tribe. Certainly that's what some of the surrogates have said in interviews. And that must be quite a startling thing to give birth to a blue-eyed, ginger-haired child, as some of them obviously do. Although, you know, you've nurtured that child for nine months, you know its mood, you felt it kick. Everything you eat, they eat. Everything you feel, they feel. Doesn't matter what colour they look like. Not really. It's your child. That connection is still there, isn't it? It's huge, yeah. Do you think that there is work to be done in India to regulate surrogacy and therefore protect vulnerable women? Well, this is a huge and ongoing debate. I mean, there are many, many people that feel surrogacy is exploitative. However, there are also many people like Dr. Parsi in my book who Mm -hmm. runs the clinic and the many people that have had joyful families from surrogacy who will say, no, no, this is a win-win situation. We get a longed-for family and we change the life of a poor woman. So in writing the book, did your view of it or your judgment alter? Well, my initial reaction was very negative. My initial reaction was, this is The Handmaid's Tale, this is exploitative. It did soften when I met people that had had children from surrogates and when I talked to people that had had very positive experiences from the clinics. I hope I'm not judgmental. I have my own personal feelings about it, but I hope I'm not judgmental because I do think it's one of those morally complex areas, ambiguous areas, that you're opinion will depend on where on that prism you stand. Tell us a bit about Dr Parsi, who owns the surrogacy clinic in India, about her character in the book before we hear a clip. Dr Parsi runs uh, the surrogacy clinic in in Delhi that Sharma and Toby eventually choose uh, to find a surrogate. She's a visionary, she's an idealist, she profoundly believes in what she does. One of the reasons she wants you to set up the clinic is that she spent too long aborting healthy girl fetuses as a a gynaecologist and an obstetrician in a hospital. And her wish was, I do not want to spend my life getting rid of lives. There must be a solution. We have a lot of fertile, healthy women needlessly aborting fetuses. I've seen so many miserable, infertile couples. What is the solution? She understands it's surrogacy. She thinks, that's my solution that I can actually be responsible for creating life, bringing joy to both sides. So she's utterly convinced about what she does. And I hope you're convinced too, because she echoes the feelings of a lot of people that run these clinics. They genuinely feel they're providing a really important and life-changing service, and in many ways they are. Let's hear a clip. Dr Parsi scrolled quickly through her new emails whilst dragging a brush through her wiry hair. The chaos of her desk belied her ruthless competence in every other area of her life. Gold medal winner at medical school, head of the obstetrics and gynaecology department at a leading Delhi hospital, all three children through medical school themselves, and a loving husband whose frequent business trips afforded her the time and energy to focus on her clinic. She caught herself sometimes regarding the surrogates almost as an alien race, their lack of education and opportunities and their diminished status as women so far from her own experiences. 
as a woman, she had never felt, not for one minute, that there was any area of life closed off to her. Her parents had positively revelled in her ambition and achievements, had never once worried that she would not marry well and happily, although they did make some slight grumbling noises when she'd reached the age of 27 without having expressed any need to settle down. Dr. Renupasi enjoyed every aspect of being female. If some stupid men out there regarded her as less capable than them or in need of taming, well, that was their problem. An excerpt from The House of Hidden Mothers, read by your good self. Mira, what is your next object? This is the one that I've been dying for you to talk about. <laughs> the next object, and here it is, a very precious thing, is mm. my mother's Indian passport. <laughs> you should see the picture of her. It doesn't look like her, actually. That, to me, is a very... Um, that's a very emotional bit of paper, that, actually. My parents emigrated to England in 1960 from New Delhi mm -hmm. and for many years had um, two passports because you were allowed to have dual nationality and you could be an Indian and a British citizen. However, the government here passed a law some years ago that you could no longer have dual nationality. If you were an Indian, you had to choose. And so my parents had to make this, I think, quite emotional choice. Were they going to stay Indian citizens or become British citizens? And they chose to become British citizens. But my mother asked if they could keep the passports. She didn't want to give them in. And when you talked to her about it, how did, how did she feel about that, making this decision? She said it was really interesting because it made her realise where she regarded home. And she said, at the end of the day, home is where my children are. And so it wasn't that difficult to say, of course, we'll become British citizens because... As long as our children are in this country, we will be in this country. So this is the politics of identity that threads through your entire book. And you could argue that you are quite critical of India. Mm -hmm. But is that because you are Indian, so you feel that you have the right to do so in a way that somebody who isn't couldn't? Maybe. I mean, I, I hope I'm not critical of India. I hope I... I mean, everything I do is tempered from an NRI experience. That's what we call non-resident Indians. Um, and we are a huge population because Indians travel. Uh, there's NRIs in every single country in the world. You know, there are corner shops in Sweden and on the Silly Isles and the Hebrides, <laughs> run by Indians. Believe me, we get everywhere. I mean, it'll be interesting to see what people in India think of the book because it's coming out there soon. But um, I hope I'm not critical, but I think, yes, I do have a right to comment on certainly my parents' experience when their flat was um, overtaken by them because as NRIs who had invested time and love and money in India, they were treated quite shoddily and they had no protection. And um, for many of us, India is still our emotional touchstone. We go back often, we have family there. Our culture profoundly still influences many aspects of our lives. So this subplot that goes through the story about this apartment that mm. you that the character's fighting to get yeah. back yeah. Um, away from the squatting relatives, um, <laughs> yes. if you can put it like that, yeah. can you explain how that is so autobiographical? Exactly the same thing happened to my father and mother. They invested in a, a flat in India mm -hmm. and it was pretty much all their life savings because that for them was the place they would retire. So, you know, even though my mother gave up her passport, clearly 
for them. Homing pigeon instinct. Homing pigeon instinct, the place they want to retire to, they want their ashes scattered in the Ganges like mm-hmm. all their ancestors yeah. before them. Totally understandable. And most importantly, they, they wanted a base in India, so when they retired, they could spend six months in India, six months with us. That's how they saw it. Mm-hmm. All of that was taken away from them because of the greed of some relatives who overtook the flat, refused to leave it, despite, firstly, my mother and father being polite and then asking and then begging, saying, we're getting older, we can't... You know, every time we come to India, we have to stay in a hotel or sleep on someone's floor. It's our flat, can we please have it back? Mm-hmm. Nothing. They eventually had to go through the courts, but because my father is a very honest man and believes in justice, he refused to pay bribes. He just had complete faith in the justice system, and that's why it took them 15 years. Do you think you'll be taken to task in India because you have made it very clear that court officials are bribable? No, because everyone knows that's how it works. Right. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Everyone knows. And I do have some very honest officials in there too to balance that out. So I don't think so. This is the part of the novel that has had the strongest reaction from other Indians that I know in this country. Not the surrogacy subplot, this. Because they read it and they go, that's my mum, that's my dad, that happened to us. Every single family. It's an epidemic. But for me it's also hugely symbolic. That piece of home that is taken away from you, how... Our family in India regard the fact that we left India. It's almost a kind of punishment that you left India, therefore you don't deserve this. It's very complex. All the emotions and therefore you going have on. A, they have a right somehow totally. in their heads to live in that place that is yes. not legally theirs. And they saw us all as millionaires. And, you know, for many years, absolutely it was unequal. We were living a lifestyle that was not comparable to what our relatives were suffering back in India. However, that is not true anymore. Our relatives now, our equivalents, Mm -hmm. are wealthier than us in terms of how far their money goes, the way they live. They live a lifestyle we could never afford in Britain. It's very interesting how the balance has changed. Let's hear a clip from Chapter 3 where Seamus' parents show their different reactions to the injustice of the property situation. And here sat her husband, with a plate of biscuits in his shaky hands, and she felt her own heartburn churning under her breastbone like an acrid sea. They had spent their retirement years fighting for the home they had wanted to retire to, and now they were older and more tired, and maybe... But she could not face this thought head on. Maybe it was already too late. He is my brother... Prem said softly, placing the plate carefully back on the table. Yogi touches my feet when we meet. Ah, and he also left you all the restaurant bills when we ate. Sita laughed bitterly, patting Prem's arm as she rose, filling the kitchen with activity, collecting mugs, flicking on the kettle again. Punjabi therapy, hot tea and changing the subject, worked every time. Accents, that's a huge advantage and joy of of you being an actor and interpreting these roles that you've written. Well, Mira, I can't believe it's time for your final object. So please, pass Ah, it over. This is a gorgeous little kitsch book um, called Baby. Um, The cult of the baby is massive in India. And babies are used to sell everything they feature on posters. Babies are considered sacred. Baby Indian poster book. Right. It's 
considered, you're not considered complete, really, in our culture if you don't have children and you know, lots of them. It's what... They're very pale babies, apart from this blue one. Thank you for noticing that, of course. The cult of the baby is huge, and so this book is a collection of advertising posters and leaflets and, as you can see, very fat and usually very fair babies. That's the ideal baby. Fat, almost white, always smiling. And they're used in this book to sell everything from toothpaste to, you know, patriotic posters. So do you think that Indians are more obsessed with babies than other cultures? I think a lot of older cultures are very child-obsessed in... in good and bad ways. I mean, I'd say the Italians are, the Greeks are, the mm-hmm. South Americans are, the Irish are to some extent. But here we prefer dogs. I think we do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you'll never get a tut-tut if you go out with kids in India. They expect you to travel en masse in generational family groups. Mm-hmm. Every restaurant, every public place, there is a fat baby somewhere. There's little kids, there's old people with sticks. Everybody <laughs> just goes together in generations, which I think is rather wonderful. But also the flip side of that is if you can't have children, how does that make you feel in a culture where you are judged by your success as a person if you've managed to have the children? So your wealth is directly... Yes. Your wealth and your status you and your future. Your future. What is your future without children? What are, are. Your, what are your favourite pictures? Oh, well, let me see. Is there one that reminds you of your daughter? There is totally one that reminds me of my daughter. Where is it? My daughter was quite chubby. She was a little chubster. She had these really chubby knees and she. <laughs> I used to put her in these... Here we are. This actually looks quite like my daughter okay. when she was about five. Oh. <laughs> You know those kind of fat knees that don't quite meet, so your legs at the bottom go out at angles? Yeah, cauliflower knees. Cauliflower knees. And she was always smiling, and she always had a biscuit in her hand. And um, that actually, that picture made me laugh out loud, because I thought, oh, my God, that's her. That's like every every picture I've got of her when she was five. Okay, on the subject of her daughters, tell us a bit about Tara, who's Shema's daughter. And it must be strange for a 19-year-old only child to hear that her 48-year-old mother is going to have a baby with her toy boy. <laughs> yes, um, absolutely. I mean, I know a little bit about that feeling. My daughter was 13 when her little brother was born. Um, and even at that ripe old age where you would think sibling jealousy is long over, oh, she yeah. found it difficult, Oh yeah, really difficult. And I thought, wow, what's that like if the age gap's bigger and it's magnified by the fact you don't have a good relationship with your mum anyway? Because Sharma and Tara have a difficult relationship. Mm-hmm. They love each other like you do, but it's difficult because Sharma really has flung herself into the new relationship with with the glee and gratitude of someone that's had a terrible first marriage and has finally found love and actually has neglected her daughter and doesn't really realise it. So for Tara, this announcement that her already distant mother is now at this age, God, not only having sex... Poking. (laughs) ..but going to have a child, a manufactured child, is not the news she was hoping for. So here's a clip from Chapter 5 when Tara awkwardly finds out about her mother's surrogacy plans. I brought you both some tea so you can toast my new manufactured sibling together. Enjoy. Tara dumped the mugs on the dressing table and made for the door. Sharma called after her. Tara, we were going to sit down with you and discuss this. Tara, you're going to do it anyway, so what's the point? Tara's voice cracked with unshed tears. She was trembling with the effort of holding them back. 
She wanted to run straight down the stairs and into the street and keep running, just as she had done when she was eight years old and had found that her father would not be living with them anymore. Tara, if you don't want us to go ahead with this, we won't. Toby had stood up. Tara paused in the doorway, her fists clenched. Sharma turned her Punjabi mother death stare away from her daughter and focused its full beam on Toby. Tara's antennae were finely tuned to her mother's silent moods and this was very interesting. Seeing her mother's obey me or die ray harmlessly bounce off Toby's broad shoulders. Tara had perfected her own filial armour over the years. She had learned to deflect any maternal manipulation and had even reached the stage where she was able to saunter away whistling a happy tune. But it always gave her a stomachache. Toby seemed calmly unaffected. For the first time, Tara looked at him with some respect. Toby's Suffolk accent. Yes. Where did you channel that from? <laughs> Toby, Suffolk. Um, I've spent a lot of time in Suffolk. And um, it's probably not hugely accurate, but I also saw Toby's kind of Gary Cooper type, you know, like of the soil, steady mm. Eddie, yeah. rooted. It's probably just my fantasy man, Richard. I've just written my <laughs> fantasy man, a farmer. <laughs> <laughs> to try and sum it up, would you say that India is a matriarchal society? Well, this is the interesting and paradoxical thing. In many ways, yes, and in some ways, really not. I mean... The cult of the mother is huge. We worship the mother. We worship goddesses. Mm -hmm. We put the mother at the head of the family unit. We also had the first, you know, we had an Indian female prime minister. We had a prime minister here Sorry. before that's, Britain. That's My mum had equal pay in 1960 in mm -hmm. India and was shocked to come to Britain and see there wasn't equal pay between men and women. We have amazing female freedom fighters in our history. So I think originally we were a matriarchal culture. And I think that was upturned somewhere by patriarchal invading forces along the way, that it just got subverted, that women from being powerful and free were suddenly domesticated and owned. And I, how do I live with that paradox and how do I explore that paradox of feeling immensely powerful and celebrated as a woman by my culture and also at the same time denigrated and owned by it? We all live with that dichotomy, and it's fantastic to explore that in, 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 a, in a book. This brings us to the end of this episode of the Penguin Podcast. Mira, thank you. And I, I hope you enjoyed sharing your objects as much as we have enjoyed hearing about them. And it was great to hear you bring the characters to life in the audiobook clips that we played. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That's it from me. Don't forget you can follow us on Twitter at Penguin UK Books and join us on Facebook to see pictures of all the objects Mira brought in today and to see who else will be joining me in the Penguin studio soon. New from Penguin Random House Audio. Oscar-winning actress Reese Witherspoon reads Go Set a Watchman, the landmark new novel by Harper Lee. Set two decades after her beloved To Kill a Mockingbird, it serves as an essential companion, adding new meaning to the classic. Here's an excerpt from the first chapter. Since Atlanta, she had looked out the dining car window with a delight almost physical. Over her breakfast coffee, she watched the last of Georgia's hills recede and the red earth appear. 
and with it tin-roofed houses set in the middle of swept yards. And in the yards, the inevitable verbena grew, surrounded by whitewashed tires. She grinned when she saw her first TV antenna atop an unpainted Negro house. As they multiplied, her joy rose. Jean Louise Finch always made this journey by air, but she decided to go by train from New York to Macomb Junction on her fifth annual trip home. For one thing, she had the life scared out of her the last time she was on a plane. The pilot elected to fly through a tornado. For another thing, flying home meant her father rising at three in the morning, driving a hundred miles to meet her in Mobile, and doing a full day's work afterwards. He was 72 now and this was no longer fair. The audiobook is available now on Audible and iTunes.